The first step in getting closer to God is to realize that you need to or that you want to. And the second step in getting closer to God is to realize that it's possible. I want to encourage you to check out my book, Getting Closer to God, Anthologies from the Forefront Trilogy, Book 2. I think this will really be helpful to you in your pursuit of the Lord and help you understand what I learned over the first 30 plus years of my life as a believer, as a minister, and as a missionary in uh, a lot of the countries of the earth. Check it out. Anthologies from the Forefront, Book 2, Getting Closer to God. It's on Amazon. One of the difficult things about walking in faith is that it's often grown through challenges and seemingly insurmountable circumstances. As you listen today, you're going to discover how it's often those challenges that also redirect our paths according to God's plan. Or, as it says in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Welcome to Leaders Moment by FX Missions Podcasting. We encourage you to take a moment to sharpen the saw of your leadership perspective and performance. We're bringing you interviews and stories of leaders much like yourself who are taking action, learning, realizing potential, and getting results. Welcome and thanks for joining. Thinking about the obstacles I mentioned before, Sometimes they direct our courses to opportunities we didn't expect. Isn't it amazing that God will take our plans and efforts, direct them, and turn them into something beautiful, even though unexpected? Today, you're going to discover how God used a promise that Dale made, his father's example and wisdom, and a willingness to embrace change, even when the entire floor seemed to have dropped out, to grow his faith, and to serve his community in ways that honor God, his team, and his customers. If that sounds good to you, stick around. You'll be blessed. Hi, Scott McClelland here for your FX Missions podcasting. Thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate it. I'm excited today to have a friend on the podcast with me. I don't know how long have we known each other, Dale Cooper, by the way. Dale, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I guess we've known each other a few years. Uh, we're kind of in the same business. Yeah, maybe three. I think we found each other as quick as we could. We both are, of course, serious about our faith and also equally serious about the things that are entrusted to us, in this case, business. And we're actually in the very same industry, although I think you're a little bit ahead of us in a lot of ways. I'm always trying to learn from folks who are ahead of me. So thank you for being here. Appreciate it. <laughs> so I know you've got, I'm going to say you got 40 years business experience. Am I right? Uh, pretty close. I probably have more than that. If you count when uh, I worked for my dad and he paid me a dollar a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like good training to me right there. But that was a slightly more than 40 years ago, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Speaking of that, what did your dad do and how did you get into a situation where you were working for him for a dollar a day? Well, my dad was an entrepreneur at heart. When I was a small kid, he worked at a company called Tappan, which used to make appliances and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Uh huh. Mansfield, Ohio. 
he used to every once in a while, usually when we were riding in his truck, he would say, I want you to make me a promise. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, you know, first one I remember is he said, I don't want you to ever smoke. He smoked his whole life and probably quit two or 3,000 times, but he never could kick it. So I never did smoke. And he told me, he said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I think I was like six or seven. I'm like, I have no idea. He goes, well, I want you to make me a promise. That's what you say all the time. And I'd say, okay. And he goes, unless you just have to, you know, if you have to take care of your family or whatever, I understand. But if there's any way possible, will you promise me you will never work in a factory? And I'm like, sure. You know, I didn't know what that meant. I don't think. He told me many times how boring and just wasn't a good job. He was able to raise his family and give us a home and everything else. But he always hated working that factory. And uh, even when he worked in the factory, he had little side things he did. Like he was an auto mechanic and auto body guy. He was an entrepreneur at heart. He had a brother that worked, I think it was uh, Westinghouse. And he had a, another brother that I believe worked at General Motors, all in the Mansfield, Ohio area outside of Cleveland. So they got together with their other three brothers and decided to start an auto parts business. My dad was the first one to quit his job and move back to Kentucky and open up a Cooper Brothers Auto Parts. Now, in Lewis County, they don't say Cooper Brothers, they say Cooper. So, <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> Cooper. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they did that. And from that point on, he was always an entrepreneur and had his own businesses. The next time he asked me to make a promise to him was to never have a partnership because they always argued and they wind up splitting up. And that was one of the worst things he said he ever went through, especially with your brothers, is let something get in between you. So he went out on his own and got into electronics and become a distributor for different types of electronics and novelties. And for if anybody young watches this or listens to it, they probably won't know what I'm talking about. But he made a lot of his money in eight track tapes. Oh, yes. And he would go around to gas stations and put them in those little bins and travel around in a circuit every week and refill them. That's one of his biggest things that he sold. That, and then he started selling the players and everything else. Wow. Today, they'd call that a serial entrepreneur, I think. Yeah, he was serial entrepreneur. I mean, uh, the last thing he did was he bought a big farm and created a subdivision. And I helped him put in the sewer lines while I was in college. Oh, yes, sir. Wow. We can safely say you got it honest. And he was leading you along the way there to make those kinds of assessments and decisions that you wouldn't get trapped by later and that you could continue to grow and develop in. Let me give you something about him. And this is important for some people maybe to understand. He quit school when he's in the fifth grade. You could do that back then. And he really only had about four and a half years education. But to this date, he's one of the smartest men I've ever been around. He used to tell me all the time, I went to college and he used to tease me about it. And I'd come home. He goes, well, you got any smarter yet? I said, no, but I'm trying to catch up to you. And he said, you got something that most people don't. And I'm like, what are you talking about now, Dad? He goes, you've got common sense. You were born with it. And that'll take you a whole lot further than a book education. I always remembered that because that's what he had. He had common sense and everything he'd done was through that. And I don't know if that's something in your genes or what that gives you that, but 
he was always good at figuring things out just as common sense. Yeah, and I'm sure he passed a lot of that kind of practical wisdom on to you as well in your raising. You had the capacity to develop that. Sounds like all along the way he was helping you, which is very cool. They had 12 siblings and grew up on a farm and you grew your farm hands, basically. When you lived on a farm back in those days where I'm from, you didn't hire a mechanic or whatever. You learned to fix things yourself. So you basically grew your staff and put them to work there, you know, interned them and everything else and got them up to speed. Where was that? That was in Kentucky. I'm taking it. But what part of Kentucky was that? It's on the northeastern part of the state, right on the Ohio River in a place called Lewis County. Look for Lewis and Clark. It's a little small town called Vanceburg. Vanceburg. Okay. Now you're in Lexington currently. That's where you live, right? Yes, sir. Yes. Sir. Yeah. Now how far is Lewis County from Lexington? Depending on traffic, it's two, two and a half hours. Okay. Okay. Not super far, but. I came over here to go to school and, and wound up staying because there really wasn't a lot of opportunity back there unless you wanted to be a school teacher or a farmer. I learned early putting in hay and cutting tobacco that I didn't want to be a farmer. That's the best way to convince somebody of that is put a cutter in her hand, hauling that hay. I've done some of that as a kid for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the business you're in and how long you've been in business. Now, obviously, I know some of this, but the business you're currently in industry-wise is telecommunications. Did you get in that kind of right after you got out of college? No, I uh, work for uh, a few different companies. I work for a company, uh, Sylvania, and I traveled the state of Kentucky and sold mostly to the uh, technology schools where they taught people how to repair stuff. I sold what I call pieces parts, transistors, ICs, even tubes back in the day, and then went around to visit all those folks and did that. And then from there, I went into business with my dad, and we were one of the first in the state of Kentucky that actually sold the state flour of large satellite dishes. Okay. In Kentucky, they called it state flower because they were everywhere. <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have any cable or anything back in those days. Yeah, the state flower was a big satellite dish. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, 10, 12 feet. Yeah, big ones. One of the, Back in the day, big ones. I remember those. Yeah. That was the state flower in Kentucky. And it's rural, right? I mean, there's a lot of Kentucky that is still pretty rural. So you did that. You guys went kind of corner to corner on that, I imagine. Yeah, it was like that Jeff Foxworthy story. He said, when you drive up the interstate, Kentucky and West Virginia, and they see those, got that big screen TV out on their porch, it's not because it wouldn't fit in that double wide. It's because they were proud of that sucker. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody had a big screen TV and a satellite dish. Yeah, yeah. I remember those days for sure. In rural East Texas, where I was raised, that also was very common. You know, I got to tell you, probably the biggest turning point in my life was that business. And then we got into other electronics and did home theater and all this other stuff and did really well for 14 years. And things started going south. And as hard as it was at the time to go through it was a a big uh, determining factor in how I am today you got to change with the times. And my mom and dad didn't like to change a whole lot. Actually, I didn't either, but I saw it coming. And when the Walmarts and all these other people started coming in, 
they run most of the mom and pops out. And we were a distributor of product and there was no longer mom and pops to sell to. So we wound up going out of business and luck of the draw on telecom. I knew I liked being in technology and excited about how things change and grow and so forth. And so there's a company called Intertel, had an ad in the paper for a sales representative, went and interviewed with the guy. I liked him. He liked me. You know, I didn't have any experience, but he was willing to give me a shot at it. And, you know, an interesting thing, I haven't told a lot of people this, but I guess I am now maybe. <laughs> but they, uh, I had a dream about that. And they had this little planter like thing on the hallway where they had plants set up on it, hung up down over. Well, anyway, I had a dream and I had these Gabriel like angels was on that ledge sitting there when I walked in to interview. And just God telling me that, you know, he was with me and, and behind me. So I wound up taking that job, making less than what my bills were each month. It was a, a move of faith, but within six to 12 months, I was the top producing salesperson and uh, had until this date, I think, of course, they're gone now, became my tail. I had sold the largest recurring revenue account in the history of the company. That was also a God thing that sent me out there. And you know how God teaches us every step we go. <laughs> so I kind of thought I had the cat by the tail, so to speak. And when I was at the end, I was off that one account. I was making $15,000 a month. You got on the right side of your bills there with that money. Add that to everything else you were doing. <laughs> yeah. And everything was good until the Grim Reaper come walking in on December the 20th. They were going to close the office. My word, that was an anniversary coming up. Six days from now will be the anniversary of that. What year was that? That was in 2000, 2001, maybe. Big change in the industry around that time. I was kind of just getting into the business in the mid-90s. You're ahead of me, as we've mentioned before, a little bit in the industry. But we've seen a lot of change in the way things work from our industry, our sector. But you've been able to stay on the horse when that happened, what happened next? What was that experience like? And what were your next steps after that fateful December 20th? I should say I didn't grow up in a church. So even though I was starting to follow God and seek out God and everything, I wasn't mature enough to really know what was going on. But basically, first thing hit my mind is, why? You know, I went from disaster to excellence here and everything's going good. Why? Why did you do that? And so you know, I don't know what the answer to that question was, only he knows, but it pushed me out into the CLEC world because I was networking with CLEC guys to sell PRIs and things like that with the PRI guys. I put in two or three resumes with CLECs and got a job within a couple of weeks. Wow. For those of you who don't know the acronym field telecom world, a CLEC is a competitive local exchange carrier. And this is back in the day when Bell was being kind of disassembled and other people could provide local access, local dial tone, local phone service and that. So that's one of those big revolutions that happened in our industry. You had a relationship as an equipment, telephone system equipment provider, and you guys provided the hardware installation, support, all that. And so for that, you had a chance to network with these other guys and be in contact with them routinely. And then a couple of weeks later, you went to work for 
Nuvox, I believe. Is it was it Nuvox at that point? Yeah, at that point in time, it's called Gabriel. Okay. And uh, it became Nuvox. Okay. Yeah. Nuvox. I remember them. I don't remember Gabriel. Gabriel was started by Robert Brooks from out in St. Louis area. Did Brooks Fiber. He died relatively soon after I started work there. And so the money people behind them kind of said, hey, you guys need to find somebody else to partner up with. And, you know, you had the dot-com bust and all that other stuff going on. So it was uh, kind of scary times for a lot of those investors. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Nuvox, you got into the Gabriel, and then, of course, it became Nuvox. You got into the the carrier side of stuff. And there was a hot time to be a CLEC. I remember it with some clarity, even probably through the late 2000s, I guess. Was it mid to late 2000s when that was really running hot? Yeah, when I was there was between 2001 and I think I left in 2007 or 8. And that was good years. I mean, as uh, my buddy often said, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. You go in and say, let me see a copy of your AT&T or here, it was Verizon at the time, copy of your bill. And you say, oh, yeah, see that thing that you're paying $3,000 for? I can sell it to you for $1,200. And they go, where do I sign? Most people were happy to save that 1800 I think also at that time, there was a lot of pent-up angst around the quality of customer experience you'd have in dealing with a what we call an ILEC or a RBOC. I mean, <laughs> here come the acronyms. These telephone companies basically that owned the territory prior to competition, they didn't always give that impressive of a customer experience. So there was pressure from price and pressure from customer experience that just converged right there. Yeah. You know, we'd probably be the same way if we were the only one did what we did. For sure. If the customer didn't have a choice, it really softens up the environment around stuff that makes sense in business today. It was a different world. So we can't totally discount that. So you just went around picking flowers for about six or seven years. You were just cleaning up, I'm quite sure, and and rightly so. Yeah, I was top salesman for many years. A lot of it was because the market was a higher revenue amount here because of lack of competition. And of course, that changed over the years once more and more of the CLEX came into this area. Right. At the beginning, it was, you know, it was crazy world. So God was teaching me a lot of stuff going through different things. So at some point, you kind of fulfilled your dad's, some of his guidance and got indirect business for yourself. Is it exact communications? Yeah, XACT. Okay, exact. Yep. We started planning it in 2010 and kicked it off in 2012. Okay, awesome. You primarily serve people anywhere they've got access to a good data connection, a good internet connection. Primarily your customers are, there's some concentration there in Kentucky. Oh yeah, we have a lot of customers in Kentucky, probably even from that stretched out more regionally to the Southeast. We actually have customers all over the United States, but there are a lot of lot of dry spots in between. <laughs> <laughs> in my case, and similar to what you're saying, I say we're kind of sprinkled over some of these states, you know, like salt. We're just barely sprinkled over some of these states. So in the telecom world, I guess, you know, that can make sense. People are looking for a solution and somebody really who cares and will share their responsibility to communicate internally and externally. So 
that totally makes sense to me. So did you feel as you were starting and planning and getting to work there with Exact, were you feeling like that was something the Lord was leading you to do? Or how did you feel from a faith point of view? And how did that play a role in those early days? Probably a double-edged sword. Number one, I really felt uncomfortable in the corporate world because I was always the guy that got in trouble for asking questions. You know, that's the entrepreneurial part. Okay, so it don't work. Now what? And corporate world doesn't really enjoy you bringing up issues, I found out. So as I elevated and got promoted into more things and actually become more of a regional director, I was on calls with more people at corporate. And so I was always, you know, reprimand's probably too strong a word. But anyway, I was always being told not to bring up issues, stuff like that. So when the rumor started around that Windstream was going to buy them out, that's the double-edged sword. I knew that, you know, that was definitely corporate and I probably was going to be the outside looking in there. So I started trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And at Nuvox, we had an agents program. And so I knew how that worked and so forth. So I just started putting all that together. And yeah, I did feel like God was leading me through it. I can't say that he told me, hey, I want you to you know, host a provider or anything like that. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Sometimes we get those angels on the planners, right? I mean, sometimes we get that and other times we don't. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not being led or we're not going in the right direction. In my case and experience as a younger business person, especially in the very beginning, I was getting a lot of very clear and precise things like the one you described that were happening. And as I've kind of gotten a little bit older and grown and matured some, that has happened less. But still, you know, I felt like I was following the path, even though it took a little more faith to go down that path with less clear signals and blinking lights and whatever else you might expect, you know. I sometimes pray is like, where's my burning bush? You know, <laughs> right. you don't always get those. But when you kind of have a mental thought or a idea and you start putting things together and then you kind of check it out against God's word and, you know, you do a lot of these things the best you can do when things go together easily. I won't say all the time, but it seems like, you know, God's allowing it, at least if not, you know, in it with you. Yeah, that makes sense. I can relate to that. There's a practical side to what we're doing. We've always seen people make, I think I've made some of those myself, where we had kind of a train wreck we thought we were being led into. <laughs> I know that's happened to me. And I had kind of the wrong ideas, I think, as a young person. My sense of self was too heavily invested in success and being the very, very best and all that stuff. And that took a little while for that to get wrung out of me, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Well, inherently, too, it's very easy. I haven't done it, knock on wood, in a while, but it's easy to let your ego think it's you and not God provision, you know, so. For sure. I think that's very deceptive. We want to hear it sometimes, I think. We want to, you know, we want to have that feeling. That's that fine line. You know, you do, even as a Christian, you want to tell people, oh, man, that's great. Congratulations. And you want to have positive, uh, but you got to make sure you stay with within your uh, upbringings, my dad used to say. 
<laughs> is that the way he had a way of saying things? It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you guys got started there. A lot of changes in the industry, a lot of changes for you, myself as well. But you guys are getting ready to celebrate 10 years coming up. Yeah. I had hair. <laughs> well, this video is not going to be played, so we can leave that to the imagination. I put the video just so we could see each other as we talk, but it's purely audio. <laughs> just imagine any kind of hairdo you want there for me, you guys. And same for Dale, by the way. So if I was a young business person starting out, I'm just getting going. I'm, maybe I've had some grouping of experiences, but I really want to get into the entrepreneurial side. Few start there and many who do start there don't survive, you know, that process. What would you offer or anything that comes to mind about how can someone who wants to work for themselves but are having to work for somebody else right now, what can you tell those guys, those ladies? There's a couple things. One is if you truly have entrepreneurialism in your soul, then you really never work a day in your life. Is you're just doing stuff you like doing. The challenge, all that things like that, you take in stride rather than defeat, you know. But I will say entrepreneurialism is not for the faint of heart. You've got to remember that nobody, there's a diagram you see on the internet of talking about from beginning to success and they show us like a straight line up. Well, nobody's life is like that. Nobody's business is like that. It's a very, very squiggly line just like life is, and you'll have wins and you'll have losses, and then you'll have more wins again unless you quit when you lose. That's the thing is you got to be in it for the end game. When I started, the reason I said 2010 and we launched it in 2012, it wasn't because it took us that long to figure it out per se of how to do a business model, but we kept running into things where I don't think, I mean, I don't like doing stuff unless I can do it well. And I kept saying, you know, this is not working. There's too many customers not going to be happy with this and blah, blah, blah. And the last thing I want is headaches. So we'd put it back on the shelf, so to speak. And then I would continue to go to trade shows and things like that and talk to people. And I'm kind of a process thinker. A lot of times I take a piece that I may get from you. I take a piece I get from somebody else, which kind of goes to your theory of why we all need to be talking to each other. And then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and I say, oh, that's what I was looking for right there. And so it's not like anybody has all the answers, but everybody, if we all work together and talk to each other, we can find those bits and pieces to make the answers work. Yes, sir. So that's what I kind of did for two years because I wasn't comfortable with the product that we were going to offer. This is a tough part for me, but when customers have issues, I take it personally. A lot of people don't understand that because they know you can't control everything. But I remember those days in the corporate world when they just ignored you and so forth. And I've been the customer of those companies and it's like, I'm not going to do that. So we communicate with our customers. Even if we don't have the answer, we communicate with them and tell them, okay, well, we're still working on it. We just didn't want you to think we forgot about you. And we've automated all of our back office on our customer service for a lot of things. For a lot of customers, we solve their problems within actually seconds to small amounts of minutes, unless it's, um, you know, an infrastructure issue of some type. We've automated our customer service. If you send a, an email to support, it automatically goes to the tech pool and the tech pulls it out, you know, so you don't have to call and be on hold. And, you know, when we first started doing that, customers like talking to real people. And I get that. I'm that kind of guy too. 
but it just streamlines it so well. And the techs are not getting interrupted with other phone calls all the time. Our flow through is much better at doing that. But that was the thing. It's like, you don't have to have, as an entrepreneur, you don't have to have all the answers, but the one answer you have to have is that you're not going to quit and you just keep figuring it out. That's where it goes into my dad said about common sense. A lot of things is you have to process through them and you have to, you know, it just takes a while sometimes, but you figure it out. And we don't have a whole lot of support from our fellow industry internet companies. They always blame it on us as soon as a customer calls. And so that's the reason we started, as you know, started doing the internet for the customer too and buying our own billing platform. And in Kentucky, we call it one throw to choke. And if you got an issue, it's mine. We do it that way for a reason is because we want to get to the answer as fast as possible. You know, as a small guy like you and I am in business world with against the AT&Ts and Verizon, stuff like that, it's hard for us to compete with marketing dollars and all this kind of stuff. But the one thing that they can't compete with us on is customer service. So I've always said that if we have superior customer service, we have a leg up in competing with them. And then we're going to be cheaper and we're just nicer people and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that definitely you got to know what you bring to the table and you've got to make that count and make it all it can be. Back to your entrepreneurial side of things there. One thing that you're kind of guaranteed as an entrepreneur is obstacles. Maybe you got that feeling inside that, yeah, you're going to work for yourself someday. And yes, you can. Anybody who's got that calling, if you will, that they're walking toward certainly can find that path and get on it. But there are obstacles and some of them look pretty treacherous. They look like this is definitely going to be the end of you, <laughs> you know, or this is going to stop it all. This is going to be something that you can't overcome. I would say most of those kinds of obstacles can be overcome, but they are testing you. They're testing your metal against the situation or the problem or the challenge or whatever like that. I think the resiliency that you're talking about is don't give up. Like you said, you'll do well and then you might have some hard times. But if you keep going past those hard times, you're going to do well again and you're going to be in a better position to continue to do well as a result of what you learned in that problem or difficult season. Am I hearing you right on that? I think that's what you were saying. Yeah, that's pretty well said. The other thing is, it's okay to say, you don't know what the problem is, but I'm working on it. I'm going to fix it for you. Most customers don't expect you to know all of it. And um, surprise, if you think differently, but you don't know all of it. So you just have to keep working on it until you get the right answer. Like I said, it's not for faint of heart because, you know, you still got employees you got to pay, every payroll, you get a lot of pressure on you. So one of the biggest mistakes that I have been part of and I've seen made from a lot of other people is you got to also remember you can't do everything. So you got to be able to grow people around you. You got to be able to give other people the right instructions of how you want things handled and let them handle it. One thing my dad used to say again all the time was, I figured out how to make this company work. So how's that? He goes, I'm going to clone myself. Of course, this was before you could actually do that, I guess. <laughs> He said, if I had 10 of me, we'd have a good company. Entrepreneurs think that way sometimes. You know, if, if I could only recreate me, that's a big misinterpretation because everybody has different skill sets. Even in the entrepreneurial world, skill sets can be different. And so you just have to put the pieces in the right puzzle hole 
and get those people doing the right thing. And for me, if I have to do bookkeeping or I have to do payroll or write checks and all this kind of stuff, that exhausts me because that's not my skill set. I hire people to do that for me. And all I do is sign the checks. Yes, sir. Oh, you got to know what you can contribute and realize what you can't contribute. And even then, you sometimes reach a limit in terms of bandwidth of your contribution. Even though you do this and you can do it great and you can do it a lot, sometimes you will even run to the limits of that. So I think it's important to build that team around you. Not only that complements your strengths, but also that can expand what you can accomplish overall. Yes. And a big mistake that is probably the number one mistake entrepreneurs make is they start out and they think the way they can win customers is undercut price of other people. And that works when you first start out. And then when when your whole day is full and you're still just making enough to pay you, but you're getting worn out. You can't afford to pay anybody else. So you have to build your business model to where you're using business model, profitability, statistics, tables, whatever you want to call it, and gives you room of profit to grow. Because if you don't have that, that story about buying a bigger truck don't work. I mean, you just can't do more with the same amount. You've got to bring other people on and you can't do that unless you're making money. So What's the first place that most of these companies cut is customer service. I don't cross that line. I can't do that. And so I quit worrying about what the competitors do on price. I make what I need to make to grow the business. And I have confidence that we're providing a service that is worth that amount of money. And the customers that don't think it's that, then my competitors can have them. And I'll take the ones that agree with me. That makes a lot of sense. And I think people who are just beginning in business or people maybe who are thinking about getting in business for themselves, there's this idea that making a profit, somehow there's a dark shadow over making a profit. But I really liked what Peter Drucker said. I read so much of his stuff as a young and growing business person and occasionally go back and review. But he said, as a business, you have a responsibility to make a profit, at least to the point where you can pay for the money and pay for the innovation. (laughs) You know, if you can't afford the cost of money or the cost of innovation, you won't have a business. Right. You just have a job that you're not making very much money on. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like that guy who's busy all day and can't even keep his head right above water. We have a responsibility as we are maturing business people to realize it's not that we're just out here trying to get everything we can get, but realize there's value in what we offer and realize that the people that you demonstrate that value to, a big portion of those people are going to agree with you and they're going to pay what you ask for and they're going to be happy to get the service that you provide. Yeah. And when you say the word value, you have to remember it's perceived value from the customer standpoint. Yes. If you're not selling it that way and they're not perceiving it that way, then you're not doing the right things. Right. Yeah. I mean, value happens on their side of the transaction, right? And whatever value that they realize from what it is you're doing to serve them, that's what substantiates the sense of worth that they have in giving you what it is that it takes to get it done. Very well said, an important piece. We're going to be winding down here, Dale. I really appreciate you being with us, but I want to get any last bits of Dale's dad's wisdom in (laughs) that we can. We got a few minutes left here. 
one of the things that I never understood about my dad was I used to say all the time is you can't let those people beat you out of your money. And he goes, what are you talking about? He kept saying, it's not my money, it's God's money. So I never really understood where he was coming from, you know, when he was still alive. But when he died, my mom gave me a bunch of his stuff and I was going through it. He had over $300,000 of unpaid bills and bad checks that people had given him that he never went after. And at that point, it hit me because at his funeral, I had all kinds of people from that funeral and then after that came up to me and said, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your mom and dad and this and that said, you know, when we were on a bad time, you know, they gave us money or they bought our groceries or they did this and they did that. And so you got to remember your customers are your customers, but they're also part of your life. And so as we went through COVID, that was one of the things we tried to do since most of our customers are small, medium businesses is we tried to approach them and said, what can we do to help you? Can we do this? Can we do that? I know you didn't pay your bill last month. Don't worry about it. Let's get your business back up and, you know, we'll help you out as much as we can and you can get caught up later and so forth. So there's a lot in entrepreneurialism. You can lead a good life. You can make a lot of money. So you got to have a a little bit of a social responsibility to help those, especially like what I do. I only sell to businesses. So what can we do to help you? All that kind of comes full circle with what he told me it was God's money. It really is. As much as we want to hoard it, as much as we want to do whatever with it, (laughs) at some point it all comes back to zero, right? Yes, sir. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse, as they tell me. Yeah. (laughs) I hadn't seen that in Texas. I don't know how it is in Kentucky, but. If he was going to see it, it'd be in Texas. I could not disagree with you about that. Yeah, you would see it here in the, you know, monster truck behind (laughs) that. One of them big trucks that's going to run over you. Yeah. If you're not going 15 over in Texas, you're in the way. (laughs) You're just in the way. I really appreciate you being here. And I'm thankful to have the friendship of a person who's serious about their faith and serious about their business. You've been an encouragement to me. Let me just say that. I really appreciate that. We'll double back with you downrange. And I'll include some links if it's okay with you on the podcast notes where folks want to get in touch with you, find your website, stuff like that. They can reach out. I didn't scare them off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I like your dad and I appreciate you sharing those stories that he passed on to you. As for me, I'm Scott McClelland with FX Missions Podcasting. If you need to contact me or us, please do so at fxmissions.com. As Dale was talking about his dad's example, even in the light of grim circumstances, that reminded me of times in my own life where challenges seemed to get the best of me, and I really was reaching for everything I could just to be faithful. What came to your mind as you were listening? Do you see any parallels in your life? Or maybe God gave you an answer you were looking for while you were listening. Shoot me an email if you would like to let me know. Please do. Scott at fxmissions.com. Next time, we're going to look at transitioning from being a people pleaser to really looking for the best option for everyone. That's all we want, right? The best option for everyone. That next episode is coming up with Brittany Miller. You won't want to miss it.
Thanks again for joining. We really appreciate you being a part of the Leaders Moment. If you will, visit leadersmoment.org slash follow to have this podcast and future podcasts delivered to your favorite podcast app every time we publish a new episode. Thanks again.